Well, good morning, students. We're ready to begin the last leg of our journey in looking at Western civilization at the end of the 20th century. We've been considering the Cold War and the split between the East and the West. Today, I want to look specifically at the Cultural Revolution in the West. To do that, I've asked you to watch a video put out by the Family Policy Institute of Washington where they interview some students at the University of Washington about the gender identity issue and whether somebody who self-identifies as a man or a woman can use the bathroom facilities of the opposite sex. And in pressing the question, not only did students uh, refuse to say that somebody would be wrong to assert that they're a man or a woman contrary to their biological sex, but the interviewer started to say, what if you thought I was six foot five? I mean, what if I thought I was six foot five? Or what if I thought I was Chinese? What if I thought I was this or that? And it was obvious by looking at the man that he's not six foot five and he's not Chinese. But the students still had difficulty to be able to say, well, you're wrong. We live in a fact value split where somebody's values their self-identity or their thoughts about what's important in life are not tied to facts. In fact, this is a realm that our Supreme Court regards as a sacred right. To define reality for ourselves is a personal liberty established and protected by the Constitution, according to the Supreme Court. Listen to this ruling back in 1992. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Of course, this was a ruling that was to establish the legitimacy of abortions. It was later cited, uh, 10 years later, to rule against homosexual laws that outlawed sodomy. And so the cultural revolution, both in the sexual revolution side and in the gender, transgender side of things, is rooted in this concept of a personal right, a personal liberty to define my own existence. And if you remember Francis Schaeffer's book, Escape from Reason, there was a line drawn across the page where the upper story would have different words like grace or freedom, and the lower story would have words like nature and such. In our day, let's think of it in terms of value being in the upper story and then fact being in the lower story. So the facts are things that science establishes for us, that the scientific method is used to establish truth, theories, that then are brought forward by our government and argued for public policy on what should be the laws of the land. It has to be backed by numbers, by statistics, by science. But when it comes to personal life, your personal choices, these are things that you get to define, no matter if they're tied to facts or not. That's your personal right, and nobody should touch that. And the government has said, we're going to guard that liberty, that you can then define yourself, meaning, the universe, even the mystery of human life. Of course, this can't go 
totally uh, full. Otherwise, I could define myself as a serial killer and think that this is my self-identity and you have no right to tell me I'm not. At some point, it breaks down and becomes self-defeating. But that's not the way our culture thinks. It thinks it's okay. You can have your religion. You can have your values. And, and nobody has a right to say otherwise. If you do, you're judging. And this is the common view of things among people. And so I want to look at this today as a revolution because this is not the way the West has thought. The West has commonly had a, a kind of a conflict between faith and reason. How do we establish truth? Do we establish it on the basis of God's word or revelation from outside our world, which is faith, or reason? I come up, I study and think, I search and then ponder and come up with answers. Those traditional means to truth actually assume the same value of truth, that truth corresponds to reality. It actually then reflects and mirrors what is really there. Now, truth has become something that just works for you. It's in the upper story and it's pragmatic. If it works for you to think of yourself as a banana, if it works for you to think of yourself as a sports car, if it works for you to think of yourself as this or that, well, who am I to say that it's wrong? It's allowing you to be a fulfilled, holistic, satisfied human being. Then it's not my place to tell you otherwise. Well, this is a revolution to come to this point. And how did we get there? That's the question I want to look at today. How did we get there? And ultimately, of course, behind it is the fact that God made us and God who made us has the right to define us and he has the right ultimately to decide what is right and wrong based on what is true. He knows all things. And so latent in this view and hidden in it is an anti-God position. We become the little God that defines who we are. And if we think... And if we get self-deluded and feel like, but I really think I am this way, it's not much different than General Patton in World War II thinking that he was the reincarnation of some Roman general or something of that sort from the past. Many people have thought they are this or that, but the reality of the situation is defined by the word of God, by our maker outside of us. So how did we get to this point? Well, I want to bring up two different books rather than just Francis Schaeffer's book, which is a good little book coupled with his other, the, the companion larger book, The God Who Is There, that gives more of the data for Escape from Reason. I want to look at two books today, and the first I'm assigning for you, and that's C.S. Lewis's book. And the second is a book by E. Michael Jones on Dionysus Rising. So Lewis's answer to that question, in part, would be the failure of education. In his little book, Abolition of Man, which has been noted as one of the top books of the 20th century among conservatives, he says there, he, he actually was given a book by English teachers for the use in schools and, and was paging through it and, and then made some comments on it. And he said it was horrible. And the reason why is that when they were evaluating literature and the author would describe, say, a waterfall as sublime, 
or something as beautiful. Instead of commenting on whether the author was describing something truthfully or not, based on the reality of the thing or the nature of the thing, all they did was say is that, well, that just reflects the author's subjective personal feelings about the waterfall or the event. And so if I were to, if I were to come to you and say, you know, I think, I think that possums are beautiful. Now, given our culture, you're going to hesitate to say I'm wrong. But you should say I'm wrong. They're like marsupial rats. They look horrible, don't they? I mean, they're meant to be out at night. Who wants to see them out in the daytime? I mean, God made them ugly. Let's just be honest about that. But as soon as I say, well, I think they're beautiful, then our culture will look back and say, well, um, you have a right to assume that. And I guess beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And if you see them as beautiful, I'm okay with that. Rather than thinking, there's something wrong with you. Because in reality, possums aren't beautiful. Now, this is a challenge, isn't it, to think this? And Lewis goes right at it. If he, as, you, as you read the book, I want you to be aware, this is the situation. When he describes things as subjective, what he's saying is that anytime value judgments are given, this is that, this is beautiful, or this is not beautiful, this is you know good, or this is not good. Anytime value judgments are given... Our culture, an education system now is even saying, well, an individual has a right to define it for themselves. You can't tell the student that's wrong. And and Lewis describes this is way different than what used to be in the past. In the past, you you wanted to incorporate, you wanted to actually instill within students and stir up and inspire within students a feeling towards something that corresponded to that something. If it's love of country and the honor of country or an honor of, of George Washington handing back over the reign of power to Congress rather than taking, taking up the opportunity to become king, well, that's honorable. We should have a feeling of deep respect for the father of our country in light of that. He's not a god. He's still a fallible man. But that's a noble act. And a noble act should have a feeling within us of deep respect and honor. And so we bring up our children to, to have such feelings towards honorable things. But then dishonorable things like Benedict Arnold, who is like the Judas Iscariot of the Revolution, who, because he was not given credit for a victory on the American side, defected and went to the British. Well, such self-serving, treacherous behavior is meant to be despised, and we should not regard him as, as honorable. That would be wrong, and it would not be true to the situation. Now, do you see what I'm, I'm getting at? This is, and this is right in line with the Bible's view of education. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom... Then we want to instill within students what is holy, a feeling, a deep feeling of fear, reverence for that which is holy, and a despising of that which is unholy and unclean. And then a regarding more of ambivalence towards that which is just simply clean or common. Okay, I think Lewis is on to something here. I think he's right. I think education has failed due to those philosophical changes that we described and that Schaefer describes. And Lewis calls it 
we have now men without chess. They have thinking heads and they have deep appetites, you know, lusts and whatnot, but they don't have chess feelings of deep reverence that should somehow connect the head to the appetites and control those those kind of raging appetites down deep with with a sense of honor and dignity and and rightness and so men without chess is the phrase now the end of the book describes some of the danger of this educational system gone wild he he sees behind this kind of desire to define ourselves the almost like the alchemist's dream to create anything to create gold out of out of other things gold doesn't come from other things but the alchemists back in the middle ages thought they could create gold from say other items copper or something and they tried and tried and tried and of course they didn't succeed and so it's like an alchemist dream to have, and for Lewis is typically the scientist is the bad guy, you know. So the scientists have this dream to like engineer mankind into our own making, and so man is going to like assume the evolutionary process, control where it goes and takes off, and through science and technology is going to guide it and shape it. And boy, when you put, you know, bioethics. And, and the human gene and DNA and now snipping this and that from the DNA and to control what the human is going to be. Yes, you can see where man will be tempted to do that same kind of Nazi eugenics and create an Aryan race. And you can see that, right? And, and I think Lewis is, is right. Some are going to be out there to do it. Some have tried to do it and didn't have, say, this the technology we do today to even get at it. And it can be horrific to even think of that kind of control over mankind down on the deepest DNA level of where where the human race goes. That would be very similar to what happened before the flood where there was a mixing and a, and a perversion, it seems like, even within man as man. Well, that's one that's one way it could go. And that's one scenario, and it's actually a scenario that has occurred many times. This is a scenario that we saw with the Nazis and we see with the Soviets. This is a scenario where it's like, as Lewis said, it's not mankind defining what mankind will be. It's actually going to be a few members of mankind who get to decide for everybody else. And so it's the myth, right? The lie that communism has that everybody's equal here and and so we're all just, you know, comrades. When in reality, there's a there's an elite behind the scenes that are controlling and manipulating everybody else. Well, that certainly then is one of the problems. And this is represented by George Orwell's book, 1984. I've never read it, but I've often seen it cited where Big Brother gets to watch over you and knows everything that's going on in your life. Of course, with the internet now and all that, it's not going to be that hard for somebody to watch over us. And so that's always a danger, and it's been demonstrated. But E. Michael Jones points in another direction and points to a different kind of revolution. It's not a political revolution, which is top-down. It's a cultural revolution, which is bottom-up. So if you think about the the communists moving into a nation and establishing their rule over a people, 
like in China and then wiping out religion and the ancient religions and all they did was prepare the way as we mentioned uh, for um, I thought we mentioned um, for the, the Christians to flourish so yes there's that top down and it's very effective in its in its pressure and force but there's another kind of revolution that's bottom up and this I, I've heard is represented by Aldous Huxley's book A Brave New World I used to think I would assign this book to students but it is so licentious it's so sensual and sexual and feeling I was like grossed by it and was like no way I'm going to have students uh, read this but it describes that that I guess from what I've been told this what happens if you could give somebody everybody a pill a happy pill and it has like no side effects and they can just feel happy all the time what's going to keep the masses from not taking the pill well, this is basically the kind of cultural drugs we have today. Call it your smartphone, perhaps. If that's like you constant go-to and say, I want to go to the smartphone and get my fix and get my kind of juiced up again. Or it could be, it could be caffeine. It could be uh, other drugs that are like drug drugs. Or it could be other kinds of lustful activities or entertainment or such. Something that feeds my animalistic base appetites. Well, that's a whole nother kind of revolution. If, if somebody could provide that to the masses, they will end up controlling them. They'll sedate them. They'll, they'll calm them down. They all get their little, their little, as it were, lollipop, and they can all sit in their corner and enjoy it. And we can do what we want because everybody's happy around here. This is a cultural revolution. It comes from the bottom up. It appeals to people's lusts, to their deep um, bodily flesh desires. Let me just give you a biblical example of this so you understand what it looks like. The king of Moab, Balak, had a problem. Two million Israelites were down in the valley. Now that's not just a few neighbors moved in next door. That's an entire nation on the move. And it disturbed him that they're going to be his neighbors in the land of Canaan, if he even knew that's where they were headed, or maybe thought they were going to invade him. So he goes and hires a, a prophet, a false prophet. This is a hired gun now, as it were, in the ancient divine world to pronounce a curse over these people. And so Balaam, if you remember the story, after his donkey incident, shows up and he's going to curse the whole nation. Well, God doesn't let him. God forces him to bless his people. And he does it again and again. And Balak is like enraged. I hired you to curse them and you're blessing them. Well, it seems like that part of the story closes out in numbers and we move on and like, oh, I guess Balaam failed. But we find out later, I think chapter 25, Balaam actually succeeded in an indirect way. If he couldn't front, have a frontal attack and force the king's will upon the people, that didn't succeed. I tell you what did. He brought the Moabite women out and sent them into the camp. That was his idea. And they started seducing the, the men of the camp. And there was all of a sudden now, and sexuality is the means that brings down people's religion. All of a sudden now, people are turning away from God left and right. And Phinehas, to his credit, 
takes a spear. He's the grandson of the high priest Aaron, takes a spear and goes to one of the men of the camp who's sleeping with a Moabite woman and drives the spear through both of them. I mean, this is this is drastic measures, but it shows how serious. There was a plague that was starting to sweep into the camp. God's wrath was stirred up. And so to stop the wrath, Phinehas started executing justice on those who were breaking the covenant with their holy God and committing spiritual adultery. And so, okay, do you see the difference? The difference between the the top-down, literally, uh, Balak wanting a a curse on the people and then the the side approach, the bottom-up, going right into the valley and, and seducing them through their desires. Well, that's in the Law of Moses. That's at the beginning of the Bible. The end of the Bible has a similar kind of, of picture as it pictures the two great enemies of the church at the end of the age. One is, of course, the beast. And you've heard of the beast. This is the Antichrist. This is the theme from the book of Daniel. These are these evil empires that are pictured as bears and lions and and leopards as this ferocious, carnivorous beast. And then, of course, the fourth one, representing Rome, shows up. And Daniel doesn't even know what to call it. He just calls it beast. Well, that one shows up in the book of Revelation with the features of the other ones. It's like a beast on steroids. And, of course, the beast makes war against the saints and overcomes them because God gives it. He allows it. He permits it. It's appointed. And so he persecutes Christians. He persecutes the saints. This is those persecuting governments like communism and Nazism and such. We rep- we know what that's like. We know their enemies. Ah, but then there's Babylon. There's the city of Rome in chapter 17 who sits on the beast, who sits on seven hills. It rules over the nations of the earth. We know this great city is Rome, and and Rome is trafficking all the merchandise of the world. In chapter 18, it's described all the commerce and the materialism that flows into, into Babylon. And she is pictured as a harlot. That city is pictured as a prostitute who is seducing the kings of the earth and the nations and giving them wine to drink. This latent rich materialism of Babylon is another enemy. If the other, if the beast like pushes and is violent and aggressive and forces his way, pushes on you, Babylon pulls at you and pulls you towards her. She allures you. And so you see this other cultural force of revolution, of alluring people. Now, both should be guarded against. We want to guard ourselves against both sides. They're both dangers. Which one won in the West? Well, it's obvious that we have not seen the totalitarianism of the East. We have not seen the Nazis. We've not seen the communists. But it's pretty obvious that after the 1960s in America, we have seen a cultural revolution Revolution means you, a complete turnaround. 
we have seen a complete turnaround of values in our culture. What used to be wrong is now right, and what's right is wrong. And according to Isaiah 5, this would be a nature for all of us to say, woe is us, we are in a bad place. Well, E. Michael Jones um, goes through a sequence, a story, and describes somebody who caught the idea of a cultural revolution. And then Jones claims that it's brought all the way to today. Jones's thesis established, or at least um, brought forward in in his earlier book on degenerate moderns, was that moderns primarily want to have their sexual liberty. They hate Christianity because it imposed constraints on them. And so they've looked for justifications for ideas that would then give them the liberty to do what they want to do. Now, I've not read that book, and so I'm not able to make comment on its thesis, good or bad, but the idea resonates with what Paul says about the difficult times to come, when men will be lovers of money and lovers of self and lovers of pleasure and not lovers of God. In 2 Timothy, his last book, he says, the time will come when they, that means professing Christians even, will not endure sound doctrine healthy teaching, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers, note this, in accordance to their own desires and will turn away to myths, to made-up stories. So they'll turn away from truth to myth. Why? Because they want their own desires. Remember there's an apologetics professor that made comment on a book of Richard, uh, it was Richard um, Weaver's book, Ideas Have Consequences. It's a famous phrase. So if you think certain ways and things are taught in the philosophy classes, eventually they work down to the masses. And the ideas taught in the universities affect everybody. And that would be kind of what Lewis is saying. In the failure of education, we are now you know, influencing culture wrong. And education should work for the good. And Ideas do have consequences, but Coppinger, Mark Coppinger, turned it around. And based on the same idea here as Paul mentions, consequences have ideas. In other words, I want what I want, and so I'm going to justify it with whatever ideas I can come up with. Two times in the book of Proverbs it says, Every man's way is right in his own eyes. We all got reasons for why we sin. Ideas or consequences, excuse me, do have ideas. And so this explains a lot of what's gone on in the West. And so Jones begins then with Richard Wagner, who who failed at a revolution in 1848. One of those top-down revolutions. And then created or talked about, apparently, in an essay about the place that art can have in producing a revolution. And so, being one of those that wanted free love, in other words, sexual experience without guilt, wanted to overthrow the social order imposed by Christianity, and knowing that the political revolution of 1849 failed, or 1848 failed, He writes this essay, according to Jones, called Art and Revolution, and tells his plan for opera to create the revolution he desires. Now, you think, opera? 
Okay, opera in the 1800s is like going to the movies now. And so there's, you, this is before all that technology. And so if you want like big show kind of feel with lots of music and lots of drama and lots of costumes. In fact, it's those operas that <laughs> gave the Vikings their horns. They never wore horns. But Wagner's operas on the Norse myths is, is really popularized the Viking helmets with horns. And so if you want that kind of big drama, you go to the opera. Well, Wagner is going to create opera then that has a different kind of feel, has a, has a chromatic feel with his music. It's going to be sensuous. It's not going to be like orderly. It's going to be, it's not going to be reasoned and orderly like classical music is going to be. It's going to be more sensuous and more free. And so he writes an opera actually on adultery. Tristan und Isolde is an opera on adulterous relationship. And of course, he has an adulterous relationship, more than one in his own life. And so it, it pictures then uh, this, this contrast between, actually the question is, is it if I live free and end up dying by it, isn't that better than living under constraint? This is according to Jones, the way I understood it. And so maybe it's even best to be free and be your own person, even if it leads to your own death someday. He has another opera, uh, Tannhäuser, where he describes Venus Mountain, where you can have all the sexual experience you want in the womb of a mountain, but it's dark and not free, versus a pilgrimage to Rome, which is free human but it's under religious constraint and of course you can see him very much like you'll read next year in Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter same time period a desire just to have the constraints lifted I can be with any woman I want to be and do whatever I want to do I want to define my own morals of course this is a corruption and this is absolutely anti-God well so Wagner, his operas then create a situation where it's like this is trying to overthrow the, the, the reign of Christianity from the bottom up. One of those who's a big fan of that, and by the way, it's really interesting that C.S. Lewis really loved the Norse myths and such from Wagner. And there's a troubling side to me of, of Lewis's liking of the myths, which I hope to explore more and haven't got to fully yet. So another man that appreciated Wagner very much was Nietzsche. And Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, also from Saxony, same place as Martin Luther and same place as Wagner, uh, really regarded um, the, the Wagnerian uh, operas as speaking the, the right thing or the thing to say. And in fact, he himself was hooked. And he was a professor of philosophy that, that asserted the primacy of the will that in, in a sense, it's not reason that should reign over our, over our conduct, but it's will. We define our own existence. If it's in power, and he talks about a superman that will someday control things, right? Remember how Hitler thought he was going to be that? That superman that would assert his own will and even kill his own friends if need be. Might makes right. Well, Nietzsche, perhaps 
even asserted his own will in sleeping with a prostitute that he might even have known had a sexually transmitted disease, syphilis, and he eventually went crazy because of that disease. Well, there you go. There's back in the 1800s. There's, on the one side, there's a musician, and on the other side is a philosopher. The two main cultural means, right, of change. Ideas, and then music. Well, Jones then draws a long tail all the way to the 1960s, where he then describes the cultural changes and the revolution in the 1960s. He describes actually the Rolling Stones and their basically hysteria, um, you know, with, with Mick Jagger and doing a goose step on the stage of, of Britain's stages. And a goose step is the Nazi, right, march. And this is only 20 years after World War II, and he was getting away with it. The indecency of the rock and roll stage in the late 1960s was not suppressed by the, the government. In fact, it probably would add trouble to suppress it. A cultural revolution was at hand. And eventually, um, Jones describes how it went to America and the love, the so-called Love Festival of Woodstock in 1969 in New York, which was peaceful to some degree, which was followed in 1970 by a very not peaceful um, rock and roll concert out in Altamont in California where Hell's Angels beat up people that kept coming to the stage and it was apparently Mick Jagger's song and Rolling Stones about Shout to the Devil or something like this and you get to the end of the book and you go okay, even if this is exaggerated and even if there was some good elements as there were in this or that style of music or time this is something new in American history and new in the West. It would be hard to argue it. And so, based on that, it's like, what should, what should we think about it? It's like, how did this come about? Now, Jones wants to claim that it's, it's a straight line. There's actually an organic connection. And, and maybe he's right. Thinker, thinker, thinker. This person does this, influences this person, influences that. And then you end up with the Rolling Stones. I'm not really sure. I think I think it could be actually a, um, a, a a correlation fallacy. In other words, the same cause is behind both the Stones and Wagner, and that is a desire, a lustful desire that then uses music to make it to make it legitimate in culture. I mean, listen to the Doors. Um, this is. This is Jim Morrison's comment. He's actually the son, I think, of a U.S. admiral and uh, became rebellious. The Doors got their name, their band's name, from an Aldous Huxley book, The Doors of Perception, how drugs can give you a, a sense of, uh, get you in touch with the spiritual world. I mean, just, it's very philosophical in that sense and tied. So here's what he says. He is one of those singers that's pushing the envelope and he's doing it very deliberately. He says, the most important kind of freedom is to be what you really are. Now, if what you really are is defined as how you were created to be, initially, back in the Garden of Eden, and how Christ wants you to be and what he's going to make you to be in heaven, well then, yeah, be that. 
But if I get to define what that is, and or if I define it by the 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 corruption and the desires I find in myself, this is rebellious against God. The most important, and that's actually how he means it to be. The most important kind of freedom is to be what you really are. It's the same kind of freedom the Supreme Court was pointing at just 20-some years later. You trade in your reality for a role, he said. You trade in your sense for an act. You just... Why would you give up your real self and then take on what you're really not and play the role? You give up your ability to feel and exchange, put on a mask. There can't be any large-scale revolution until there's a personal revolution on an individual level. It's got to happen inside first. Well, this is the prodigal son that just says, Dad, I don't want to listen to you anymore and goes off to a far country and wastes all his resources and ends up impoverished in the end. That kind of freedom. The ultimate solution is not to become the big brother that says, okay, I'll slave for dad and I'll stick it out. The ultimate solution is, give me a new heart, God, that loves your law and loves what is true, what is in reality, reality. Give me that, oh God. Being born again is actually a solution. Then I get to be who I was always intended to be and someday I will be fully that. And more and more can be that. Well, this is in keeping. This, this, this cultural revolution is very, very um, effective. So I, don't, I doubt that Jones's sequence is correct. But I do think... He's on to an insight that it's it's the lust, especially sexual lust in the West, that drives the cultural changes and comes up with ideas, consequences of ideas, and that music was a chief means to promote it. Recently in a liberal uh, periodical, The Atlantic, um, Jonathan Merritt wrote an article on moral relativism is dead, the, the new freedom is actually now in place. Nobody's looking at it being relativistic. That's the law now. That's the cultural norm. If you don't abide by it, you will be punished. And he quotes, I think he's right in that. I don't, I don't want it, but I think he's right. He quotes a 17th century Scottish politician named Andrew Fletcher who says, If a man were permitted to make all the ballads, he need not care who should make the laws. That's quite a quote, too. Maybe that's why David wrote Psalms. He didn't just become a king with a throne and a top-down authority. He then wrote the hymnal for the nation to create a bottom-up support for the worship of God and godliness in his land. Much like the pastors of the Reformation era and beyond wrote songs for their people. Well, this brings up then the other place that I disagree with Jones, and that's his view of music. His view of music is very is much is based on on uh, the Greek thought that reason should control appetites. And I used to think this way myself, and I understand it. You know what it means. There's a in other words, there's a kind of music that maintains order, the Phrygian mode, and there's a kind of music that ruins order or rational thinking, the Dorian mode. And you know what this is like. If you want to 
think through something like math problems, whatever. Some music is going to enable you to be good background music and think, and some of it is going to like stir up passions and emotions, and you're not going to be able to think. And so to a Greek, you need to think. Reason is king, and it should be king. Well, I doubt that. I'll explain that in a second. Let me go to another cultural influence. In, the, in America, our music comes from two directions. It comes from Europe, and it also comes from Africa through the, the southern slavery. And we have an influence from both. Well, the African-American culture, which was very influenced by Christianity and God's mercy, though it was, a, it was in and of itself was an evil, God uses evils for good, it created three kinds of music. Uh, one was the Negro spiritual, which has a sway. The other was a toe-tapping music, just a happy music. And the third was a carryover from Africa, the ring dance, where they clear the tables, clear the chairs out, and they'd go in a, in a circle and work themselves up to a frenzy. Well, the pastors condemned that in the South, but they approved the Negro spiritual and the, the toe-tapping happy music. This is very much like the categories of Scripture of holy and clean and unclean. It's a, a professor of mine once gave me, pointed this out from Leviticus as a good way to look at cultural things. Is it holy? Is it clean or common? And is it unclean? It also taught me that music intrinsically has a, an emotion and a motion. It has a certain way to move as well as a certain way to feel. It embodies a spirit. It becomes even the language of spirit. So while these two, while looking at them, you say it, it looks tempting to want to agree with the Greeks and with Thomas Aquinas and, and thinkers of, in the Christian past that reason should control the passions. Reason should control those appetites. The biggest passions being like Samson, lust and anger should be controlled by reason, by thought. Maybe even C.S. Lewis, it should go through the chest and control those. My thinking on this was overturned by Psalms. Psalm 16 verse 7 describes the Messiah as having prayer in the night where his gut counseled him or taught him or guided him. And I thought, that seems opposite to me. I don't want my passions to teach me. I want my mind to teach my passions and to control them. Well, this showed me that God's intention for the human being is actually to have our passions so controlled, so infused by a love for God, which is verses 1 to 6 in Psalm 16, that they can actually drive us and lead us rightly to God. What Aquinas and the Greeks are actually supposing is the dis, is the the fight that we find within man where he is against himself, where his appetites are base and carnal and degenerate versus his mind which is actually not holy either and is very much captured by man's glory. 
But this picturing man as being naturally in conflict is not the way God intended for man to be. Theologian Greg Allison pointed this out to me in his book on Roman Catholic theology. That should be questioned. And I think this psalm on the Messiah, which is fulfilled in Jesus, shows that God intended man without sin to actually be a unit. It's not reason and appetite. It's a combined, maybe like Jonathan Edwards' word, affection. Something that's both thinking and feeling at once. It's both body and soul united where the man does it. The man feels and does it simultaneously and thinks it. Much like the Hebrew word for heart, which is both thought and feeling and no dichotomy between the two. Very much spirit. And so this this then captures me with what Christian music should be. Christian music is not rational music, which then should control and keep in order the passions, much like the way the 1700s smoothed out the hymns of the Reformation era and made them very, A mighty fortress is our God, versus the syncopation that Luther, when he wrote his hymn, and I don't know what it is, but it might have been something like, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. That's different. You don't have to smooth it out and make it like geometric. It can have feeling. Now think of it this way. If demons, remember how demons tortured Saul. And so music, David's harp, chased those demons away. We can see that demons want a certain spirit to live in. They want a certain, they are spirits, and so they want, they abide in a certain spirit. And so if you harbor anger, you open your door, the Bible says, you give a foothold to the devil if you don't get rid of your anger. Well, music that is naturally angry all the time, like in Altamont and and the rock and roll of a lot of that era, just invites invite spirits in who are unclean and angry to just abide and to live in the atmosphere of that place or in that soul. When spirits invade, they take over. They possess, ultimately. They either seek to influence strongly, and if they can, they want to possess. And you lose your personality. And so to guard against that, don't open the door to passion, right? Don't open that door to those spirits to to come in. Guard it with your mind. Be a man. Be a homo sapiens, right? A thinking man. Okay, I understand that. But rather than that view, think of it this way. The Holy Spirit, when he comes in, he doesn't possess. He leads. He fills. He actually fulfills your personality. You become more. Not less because he's there. You become more you even because now he is recreating you to be as what you were initially meant to be. The leading and the filling of the Holy Spirit is in Ephesians, is is paralleled in Colossians by being filled richly with the word of Christ. It's both feeling and thinking combined in in a spirit, in a heart. This is the full control of the Christian. 
that the Holy Spirit brings, and it is not without reason then that Paul says the natural result of being filled with the Spirit and filled with the message of Christ is music. You sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord and you speak with wisdom by song to other Christians. And so I'm inviting you to not turn away from, say, the passionate culture of your day which feeds on lust in order to turn to the rationalistic classical period of the past. I'm actually telling you to reject both of them. Christianity isn't either. It's not fact in the lower, all just fact and statistic, or value up above where I get to define what I want and do what I want and indulge my flesh. It's actually, what it is actually then is a combination, a unified whole person. Being integrated is the word. You have integrity. Where your whole being, by regeneration, being born again, is given to God and it finds expression in Christian music. When you're led by the Holy Spirit, you will sing praise to God. It will just come. But I'm asking you, young person, why do you want to invite and create an environment for the devils to haunt, as it were? For lusts, as it were, to grow and fester? Or to become proud through thought or something? Why do you want to do that when there's so much rich, good music that is rich in the word of Christ, that is a command, but also filled with the Holy Spirit, that also is a command. And they're actually two sides of the same coin. Because of the fact that you live in the West, you might think it's more safe for Christianity because we don't have those totalitarian Nazis and communists. But I want you to know, you may not live with the beast, but you do live in Babylon. And you are told in, in Revelation 18, come out from her, my children, my, my, my people, and do not share in her sins. You are told to actually keep yourself unstained by the world and to keep yourself pure and holy for God. Don't let the temple of God, which is your body, become a place for the worship of lust or the devil. If you're a Christian, you've escaped that. Keep it clean for the worship of God. And I especially want it to be when you're alone. That time should be God's time. Where you can listen and hear from Him and pour out your heart to Him and take refuge in Him. Don't let that time become the indulgence of the flesh time. No. Let it be a, let it be a temple that's holy for the Lord. So I hope you can appreciate the value of these authors and what they give us to help us understand the cultural revolution in the West and why it succeeded. So may the Lord bless you with holiness, which is the pathway to happiness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.